Hello friends, and welcome to the Healing Ground Movement. Now for more content and bonus features, you can join us on Facebook and Instagram. And remember, all of our content is delivered freely. So please consider supporting the show by donating via the link on our website at healinggroundmovement.com or liking and reviewing the podcast on your favorite platform. Enjoy today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by the incredible Rad Roller Mobility Tools, my absolute favorite tools for self-myofascial release for at-home treatment for all aches, pains, and mobility issues. Check out the link in our show notes below and use the special offer code HEALING20 to get a special 20% discount on your first order. Enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Healing Ground Movement Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, and joining us today, we have Dr. Leslie Kasanoff, another um, chiropractor by training who does so much more. She focuses on empowering women over 40 with the keys to maintain vitality, clear thinking, and positive moods through simple nutrition and lifestyle change. With a background of 25 years as a holistic chiropractor and 10 years before that as a medical laboratory scientist, Dr. Leslie combines the science geek with the holistic side to help women heal naturally using food and lifestyle and medicine. And I just love this marriage that you have, um, Dr. Leslie, between the science geek and holistic, because I think so often we think they don't belong in the same sentence. And I say, I don't know where we'd be without that. So exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, there are definitely those in the more alternative side that will not look at any science and we cringe you and I both cringe when we hear that. <laughs> we see that. <laughs> but just but, as extreme, yeah. this thing that science doesn't have any place for the holistic and lifestyle and and the what I know we have been both called in the woo category of life. I mean, we need we need just a little bit of both to to really see changes. We do. It's all it's all about balance. So tell us a little bit about this um, fantastically nerdy journey you have been on, Um, you know, coming from that heavy science to alternative doctoring and and now what you're doing today. Well, um, the story in brief, (laughs) (laughs) people usually want, excuse me, people usually want, want to know why I moved from Western medicine into alternative, like what happened? And basically the story is this, that um, right around the time I was actually just finishing up with my medical laboratory sciences degree, I was working as, I was doing my internship. And one of the very last things that I had to do was I had to assist at the bedside for a bone marrow biopsy. Mm -hmm. And When I walked into the room, I saw this little lady laying in the bed who, to my then 22-year-old eyes, looked like she must have been 110. (laughs) And, you know, this procedure is just a horrendous procedure. You know, they use a blunt, basically a large blunt-ended needle, and they thrust it into, you know... Standards at the time was were that they were using the sternum for getting bone marrow. So there's this old old 
medical doctor, old male medical doctor, thrusting this needle into this little old lady's chest. Wow. <laughs> and the you know, and blood curdling screams because you just because you can't anesthetize for that. You know, once you penetrate bone, it's you know, even if you used a local, it's not gonna matter. Mm-hmm just blood curdling screams. And it was, it was just a horrendous experience. He finally got done. He finally handed me the sample. I made the microscope slides. I got the hell out of there as quick as I could. And when I got back to the lab and handed the sample to the, to the senior tech, I told her about my experience. And she looked at me with these sad eyes and she said, but Leslie, they don't even treat leukemia in patients that old. So I was flabbergasted. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so yeah, I see the look on your face. So why were they doing it? Exactly yeah. my question. Mm-hmm. You know, that they, they they were doing it basically for the reimbursement to put a name on her disease. They weren't doing it for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that gets to the heart of so many things that we talk about in, uh, I, I want to be a little generous here and say that our traditional medical model is fabulous for emergency care where emergency care is needed. But one of the many problems that we see in our healthcare, which is really a disease management system these days, is that there are a lot of tests and a lot of weight being done um, just to be able to name things, just to be able to reimburse. Exactly. It's not patient centered. It's not. It's not patient centered. It's yeah. And yeah. So anyway, I mean, that was that was basically you know when the light bulb went on, mm-hmm. and 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 that's and I think that's the thing that I learned was that I wanted I wanted to be in a field that was going to contribute to somebody's betterment. I didn't want to be in a field that was going, that that there were going to be questions about whether or not I was doing that at any given moment. Mm, I know. So, and so that's why I, that's why I eventually moved into chiropractic. Mm -hmm. And I love, you know, chiropractic. Now I'll throw my hat in the ring on that as well. It's just, that is a, a care, a care program that really does take a look at what the patient needs and what are the outcomes. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's all is about that functional place that we hope our patients arrive to. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and then, so kind of fast forward, you know, as I moved through, you know, 20, 25 years in practice, started having my own health concerns. And when I was going through the whole perimenopause thing, I <clears throat> made the mistake what I now realize was a mistake of listening to a medical colleague when she suggested that I go on bioidentical hormones. And they worked okay, but I gained 20 pounds in two months. Ow. And I was like, I'm not having this. <laughs> My mother had gained quite a bit of weight when she when she got older. Mm-hmm. And I was having visions of 200 pound Leslie, which was just not going to work for me. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I went off the hormones and then I had to figure out how to balance the hormones and get the weight off. And basically through all that, I put together a system that helps, you know, that helps me do that and then started using it with some of my patients and it was helping them. And then long story short on moving out of practice, you know, my kids, my, my kids grew up and they weren't around anymore. And I looked around and it was like, I have nothing holding me to this particular location or to having to be in an office nine to five, except the fact that I have an office that I'm in nine to five. <laughs> so let's scratch that one. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And so now you take your hard earned wisdom and personal trial and error and science and understanding and, and help other women who are in that peri postmenopausal range, which you know, just to acknowledge, I mean, no small feat to have accomplished what you did when all of your hormones are kind of working against you towards your goals. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not easy, <laughs> but I feel like I've made it easy, easier. I've made it simple for other women. It's still not easy, but it's yeah. you know, the difference between simple and easy. We all know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly our listeners, I hope um, over the years have, have taken that message home. Yeah. But I think there is really something too, to the fact that if you don't have to reinvent the wheel yourself, you know, exactly. so, so often when we go into a healthcare crisis or a healthcare conundrum of some kind, it's not knowing where to start and not knowing what's already been laid out before you. Mm-hmm. So, so having exactly. that simplicity is such a gift. Yeah. Well, let's start with a few um, misconceptions, maybe, about managing perimenopause, um, both naturally and hormonally. I think that it's still a very vague area. It's something Mm -hmm. that there's not been, well, more and more now these days, there is more research, but historically not a lot of research about, and a lot of myths about how hard it is, impossible to do it naturally. Mm-hmm. And that basically you're just going to be dry and miserable. So <laughs> go. can you, can you illuminate some truths for us on any of that? <laughs> sure. So first of all, there's a ton of misconceptions out there. Like you said, um, one of the biggest ones is the things that you, is the whole interaction with food and your hormones. And it all basically comes down to the hormones you take in, in the food that you eat and your gut microbiome and the hormone, you know, and, and things that behave like hormones that are in our environment. Mm-hmm. You know? So one of the things that people don't realize is that animal food is just loaded with naturally occurring hormones. Mm-hmm. Go figure. It's from an animal. They have hormones too. <laughs> they have hormones. So if you're eat if you're eating meat, you're getting hormones. If you're eating eggs, you're getting even more hormones. If you're eating chicken and you're eating dairy, those are actually the two worst. Hmm. What makes and, uh, dairy and chicken be the two worst? Do you know? Well, the thing of it is, think about it this way: a chicken. We'll, we'll handle the chicken first because it's easier. Mm-hmm. A chicken lays an egg every day of its life, right? 
Just about. I got four clucking around in my backyard right, right there. You're not quite that, that, going that requires a whole lot of hormones. Yeah. So those hormones are therefore going to be in that chicken meat in mm-hmm. very high concentrations. They're also going to be in the egg in very high concentrations. Makes sense. Right? Egg's got to grow into something. Right. But or not, as the case yeah. may be. <laughs> And, and the thing, and the thing about dairy is kind of a similar thing. Dairy is wh- what is milk? Milk is growth fluid that's produced by nature. In this case, you're you're consuming the growth fluid of an of an animal that w- that that fluid is designed to turn that cute little 40 pound calf into a thousand pound cow in a year. <laughs> and you're drinking that as a grown ass human. <laughs> Pardon my French. <laughs> well, and I just, I love, I've never heard milk called growth fluid before. And I, I don't think I want to hear it called anything else. That's fantastic. It's, it's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's growth fluid. That's it's fabulous. Fluid. Yeah. And, and then when you make cheese out of it, all you've done is you've sucked all the fluid out of it. So you've just concentrated it that much more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, wh- one of the things I I like to tell people that there are very few things that are like have to do's mm-hmm. in in my coaching, but. I really, 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 really want them to examine. Do you really want to be drinking that or consuming that? Mm-hmm. And so understanding where where there are hormones, exogenous hormones. So um, I think two words to kind of point out that I think will show up throughout our conversation here is exogenous hormones, the ones that um, occur outside of our body, you know, mm-hmm. naturally to other things, but not right. to us. And endogenous hormones, which are the ones that are natural to us internally, the ones that, right. that we, we make. make. Yeah. Um, so knowing where exogenous hormones exist in our world, we are able to now make choices about what we want to consume and the impact that they are going to have on our lives and our bodies. Um, just you know, for the sake of the conversation, what are other places that exogenous hormones occur that we might not be expecting? Okay. Well, that's another whole big category mm-hmm. because, because like I said, we, we did address the whole food thing mm-hmm. and- you know, and, and there is a lesser amount in, you know, in your fish and your meats and things of that nature. And I don't tell people they, they need to be vegan. You know, I tell people they can, they can eat animal products two or three times a week. That's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. But don't, you know, but most people, when you look at, you know, butter and yogurt and cheese and all that stuff, they're eating, they're eating animal food 15 times a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So even just looking at what, what you have on your plate um, yeah. can be a yeah. stark reckoning. Yeah. But, but back to your other question about other places where you can find hormones, there's actually a whole category of what are called xenohormones, which are chemicals, man-made chemicals in our environment that our body, that, that look enough like estrogen to our body that our body has a hell of a time with them and they behave very much like estrogen in our bodies. So they will bind to our estrogen binding sites. Mm -hmm. And 
they can wreak havoc on our bodies. And so a lot, you know, and that's a whole big category of stuff that, ha- you know, that's a lot of it is the stuff that you put on your skin, you know, makeup products and hair products and all this other stuff. Um, if you're using stuff that's not organic, it's likely that you're using stuff that has xenoestrogens in it. Mm-hmm. So that's another whole big category of something that we, you know, that we, that I examine with, with my clients. All right. And I just wanted to touch yeah. on that briefly as we're talking about, because really when it, when it comes down to it, oversimplified, grossly oversimplified, what we're looking at is, you know, the hormone, our hormones, you know, mm-hmm. as, as we are aging women, um, what are our hormones doing? And one of the ways that that is impacted is by those exogenous ones, mm-hmm. a lot of endogenous things that we can do as well. And we'll, we'll get to that. But I, just, as we were talking about food, I wanted to highlight, mm-hmm. I think that's another misconception is that it's only food. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's not only food, mm-hmm. but just to kind of bring it back to the other side and things that you can, more things that you can do in the way of food mm-hmm. is that there are foods that are very helpful too. And so a lot of those foods that are helpful are your fruits and your veggies, both because they help push all the metabolized hormones out of your system faster. And because they do have chemicals that have a certain amount of hormone activity. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about all that. Okay. So, so the thing, so perfect example, soy, there's a lot of noise out there about soy having estrogen in it and soy mm-hmm. not being good for you and all this crap. <laughs> um, and the thing of it is that Soy has genistein and a couple of other phytochemicals in there that do have a little bit of estrogenic activity. But the thing of it is, is that we now know that we actually have two different kinds of estrogen receptors. And there are estrogen receptors that do good things in our bodies that help keep things balanced and help keep things the way they're supposed to be. And then there are estrogen receptors that if we get too much of, you know, if we have too much of those estrogens, we run into more trouble. Mm. So, you know, so basically the estrogen, the genistein and those estrogen-like compounds don't react as strongly in our body as the other, as our naturally occurring estrogen, or as other exogenous estrogens, or you know, the, the estrogens that we all know chemically is, you know, we we can name the chemical names, but we're not going to bore people with that. <laughs> so, so, if I'm hearing you correctly, then it's that yes, soy does have estrogen in it, but it's a different chemical type. It's a different chemical compound that is something that we don't need, that we need to think about differently? I wouldn't call it estrogen. Okay. It, it has phytochemicals that do, be, that do bind to certain estrogen binding sites. And by doing that, look at this, by mm-hmm. binding to those estrogen binding sites, they actually prohibit 
our natural estrogen from doing that, which brings our overall estrogen activity level down. Okay. And as we go through perimenopause and menopause, which direction are we hoping our estrogen is going? Okay. It, we want, it's, it's going to be going down. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the thing of it is one of the reasons we have the problems that we have in menopause and perimenopause and menopause is because for that period of time when we're fertile, our estrogen and our progesterone are balanced. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then our progesterone levels start decreasing in, in, in our 30s, actually. So by the time we get into our mid-40s and we start with this perimenopause stuff, our progesterone levels have been decreasing for 10 years. And so it's that balance between those two that's upset. So when you can bring those estrogen levels down, you're bringing the body more back more into harmony. Because what we're looking for is in this in this regard is not necessarily a same level as you had in your 20s and 30s, but a similar ratio. Exactly. So, and so yeah, yeah, you don't you don't want the same level because if you get if you have the same level, you're gonna continue having your periods and continue all that other crap. And <laughs> I mean, it's 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 super fun and all, but um, there's an end date, right? Yes. <laughs> so, okay. So I guess that I, I love that we are, are really kind of stomping down on a lot of the, this misconception because yeah, soy got, especially I would say like 10, 15 years ago, soy was really on the, the perimenopause hit list, um, as far as what that's going to do. But, um, I remember, article after article talking about the estrogen in soy and really that's a complete misnomer right and, but and not oh excuse me i was gonna say not, not only that there have actually been several studies done that show that women who for, first of all women who consume soy in culturally the Japanese, the Chinese, the the Southeast Asians have a much lower can, um, breast cancer rate than we do. So there's and, that. Yeah, and, and, and breast cancer rates in around um, you know perimenopause, menopause that is often related to that imbalance of a ratio mm-hmm. between estrogen and progesterone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so there is that. There's also the fact that there have been numerous studies that show that women who have breast cancer have a higher survival rate, both breast cancer and ovarian cancer. They have a higher survival rate if they have soy in their diet. Oh, fantastic. So there's that. And then there's also a study that just came out that I just saw. It came out, I think, I think last year sometime mm-hmm. that actually showed that women who consume soy like a couple of ounces a day consistently um have about a, about 80 about 85% of them report less perimenopausal and menopausal issues including all you know all the things not just the hot flashes and the brain fog but all the things like you know the vaginal dryness and mm-hmm. You know the other twenty some some odd symptoms that we could name off. 
Well, that is fantastic. So having all of these pieces, we really, you know, what I'm taking away from what you've shared so far is that we have um, ways of working with the hormones that we bring into our body. And whether that is the animal-based hormones, the estrogen that we get from the animals who need that as they're laying eggs and we consume that. Um, but then also looking at things that we can do to limit the levels of estrogen within our bodies, also by what we consume with food, whether that is something like soy that takes up those estrogen receptors and therefore can help change that ratio as you were describing, or things like fruits and vegetables. Um, I know broccoli is quite the darling for this as well, as well as carrots um, mm -hmm. that can help I don't know, create a carnival ride to get all that extra hormone out of you as well. Exactly. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. yeah. So, and, and yeah, so that's part of it too, is that a big part of it is that we want our bodies to be able to get rid of the stuff as we metabolize it. Mm -hmm. and, and when we're not eating enough fiber, we don't do that. And where does so, it go if we don't do that? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so if we're not eating enough, enough fiber, we, you know, we don't, we don't do that. So when I, when I talk fiber, I'm not just talking fruits and veggies. I'm also talking, you know, your complex carbos, your beans, your, your whole unpulverized grains, you know, things of that nature. I tell people when, they're, when they're eating the way I, the way I suggest that they eat, I tell them they don't really need to count calories. They don't need to count um, carbohydrates. They don't need to count fat grams. They don't need to count any of that stuff. If they want to count anything, count grams of fiber, hmm. okay? And, and get yourself up around 50 or more grams of fiber in a day, and you will distinctly notice the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's fantastic, especially because these hormones are, um, you know, they're, they're fat soluble. So if our body has any extra hormones, any extra estrogen lying around that we're not using because we're not going through our menstrual cycle every month, then it just gets stored for a later date if we don't pull it out of our body. And that's mm -hmm. going to go right into fat. Mm -hmm. And then we can't lose fat that is doing a job of protecting us from something or holding on to things that are toxins or hormones. Right. And there goes that persistent weight gain in our later years. Mm -hmm. Yep. So counting calories. So this is another um, myth that I kind of want us to tack on here is that counting calories and restricting your food is the way to lose weight during menopause. No. No. You, you really... So, so I tell people that if they're eating... Basically, if they're only eating animal foods a couple of times a week, you know, they're, you know, they're not getting most of your animal foods. When you really look at it, about 70% of their calories comes from fat because fat has so much more calories per unit volume. You know, this is, you know, that, um, then, then carbohydrates or protein do. So if they're not eating animal food or they're only eating it a couple of times a week and they're not adding globs of oil to anything, I, su I suggest that they cook, that they, that they saute. I, I, show, I teach them how to saute without oil, okay? So I, I basically teach them kind of a low-fat version of whole food eating. 
And so is there a purpose of going low fat around perimenopause when fat is so important for our nerve function and our brain function as well? Well, you're going to get, if you're eating an avocado, a day, if you're eating even a half of an avocado or a handful of nuts or a, or a couple of tablespoons of seeds, you're going to get all the fat that you need. Okay, it so really, it's not, it, it's yeah. not, it's not, we don't need volumes of fat. You know, we still have heart disease is still much more likely to kill any woman in this country than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking so, at things like healthy fats that come from those avocados and seeds and, and nuts, you know, still that we're not, I, I don't want to give the impression that we are limiting all fat intake and, and that, that, that low fat, non-fat means the same thing as it did in the nineties with no, the high no, sugar content no. and, and the no. replacement. We no. still want good natural fats in our diet. Yeah. I, I still, t- I, I tell people whole foods is the number one thing. Okay. And mostly fruits, veggies, and beans. Um, some, you know, whatever, you know, grains, unprocessed grains. So, you know, your brown rice, your quinoa, your barley, your red, you know, your red rice, your black rice, you know, all the different kinds of beans, you know, all those things, those are what should make up the majority of your diet. Now, I encourage them not to add isolated fat into into that. So don't put, you know, so don't put olive oil or avocado oil in there. If you want something to bring a little bit of richness in it and you want to, you know, grind up some nuts or something like that and put it in there, you know, do that kind of thing. Or, you you know, put some nutritional yeast in there to get get some richness. That's one thing. But when you take take it in as whole food, your body's going to absorb what it needs, but it's not going to absorb as much of the calories from it as it is if it's just plain oil and your body has nothing to, to pad it with. Well, and then on top of that, when you're doing the whole foods, you have the fibrous content of those nuts and fibrous content. Avocado is very fibrous despite being so creamy, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, that we get, we get the whole, the whole food, we get the whole experience of everything that food has to offer. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, and it's so, so much more satiating Mm -hmm. when you can fill up yours, when you can fill up your tummy with a ton of food and it not it's not a ton of calories. And mm-hmm. that's why I say, you know, they really don't need to count calories because if they're not eating, now, if they start eating a fair amount of nuts and seeds, then they may have to go back to calorie counting. That's, you know, but that's, that's, that's your individual decision. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but the way I do it and the way I suggest that they do it, they really don't need to be counting calories. And so from all of these pieces, you know, that now we're getting um, really good fiber to bring out, we're, we're eating a well-balanced whole food meal, which for many people shifting from processed food-like substances into whole foods, I mean, they're going to get a huge um, diet and lifestyle shift just from doing that, exactly. let alone going the yeah. next steps, which are, are highly encouraged. Um so what, what does food have to do? We, we've kind of set up for this question and talking about how food and hormones um, interact with each other. Mm-hmm. 
But can we draw the line a little bit more finely because, you know, a food influences hormones and, and hormones influence our mood and our energy and our thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We talk a little bit more about that, that impact as well, because I think many of us, um, you know, are still being taught that what we eat doesn't have much to do with how we feel. <sighs> it's just energy packets. <laughs> <laughs> which any of our listeners are probably not thinking that if you've been listening for a while, but I'm just saying. (laughs) Yeah. It's such, you know, the more we, the more we learn, the more we realize that we don't know what we don't know. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and, and part of it is the hormones that we've already talked about being the estrogen, the progesterone and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But the other huge part of it is all those other hormones, all of our neurotransmitters, all of our digestive hormones. When it comes down to it, every single thing that happens, every single reaction that happens in your body requires a hormone in some way, shape, or form, because hormones are basically how your cells of different types talk to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, that's you know, so they are the messengers, and those hormones. We now know most of them, a good eighty percent of them, are in fact not made by our brain. They're made by our gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. They're made by the bacteria in our gut, and then they're absorbed from there. And the fuel of the gut microbiome just has to be what we feed it. <laughs> exactly. And, and so bring this back full circle, God and God in her wisdom created, you know, created our bodies to work together with that micro with that microbiome and that microbiome the good guys in the microbiome feed on the same on the same foods that are good for us mm-hmm. on that high fiber on those high fiber foods so okay. when you're feeding that properly then you're going to start to shift that balance better too what a brilliantly symbiotic situation i mean isn't when it, it? When it comes down to it, we the 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 meat bags that we carry around with us all day, our bodies, are more bacteria and virus than they are our very own cells. We we are <laughs> symbiotic with these little buggies. Um, and and I I just the more I learn about it, the more phenomenal that is to me. And so as we think about that, that wisdom of the gut, you know, we get that gut mm-hmm. feeling. We, we have the language for it colloquially, but we really do need to fuel our body with the food that is going to turn into the signals that we need. Mm-hmm. And even more now, you know, they've started calling the gut the second brain. And I hear a little bit kind of creeping out here and there. And it just tickles me is that the gut is really the first brain. <laughs> the, brain the brain itself, the, the whole packet of neuro, neurons can't do anything if it's not being fueled with what the gut provides. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes so, I think, empowering to start thinking about our health and the transition of perimenopause into menopause this way, because we are now not at the mercy of our body and this unknown transition and this shutdown into early death. And I mean, there's such terrible language that we get <laughs> to this. 
that instead we can start to understand the process and take responsibility for, for nurturing and giving ourselves what we need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another misconception or question I have about looking at our body from this functional point of view and, and handling a transition like this is, um, is perfection necessary? I mean, as you and I were talking about beforehand, it sounds like I got to live on kale. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) I like to tell people that chocolate is still my best friend. (laughs) I mean, you're not welcome on this podcast if we can't at least pass that. I'm kidding, but also. (laughs) There's room for life in this, yeah? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so no, there are no have-to foods. There are no forbidden real foods, <laughs> you know? And there's a difference between what you eat regularly and what you, you know, and treats. So there's a difference between treats and what we eat every day. And if you're making most of your food, your beans and your 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 fruits and your veggies and your grains, then you can eat a little bit of other stuff as treats. You know, I still, I you know, like I said, chocolate is still my best friend. <laughs> um, doesn't mean I eat a lot of it, mm-hmm. but you know, but I, but it is, it is something that is in my diet, and it is something that I've come to. And, and and it and it all it's all adaptable with the individual person. I think that's the biggest key. Now, I don't eat I don't eat a lot, I don't eat a lot of sugar. I don't eat a lot of I, I very rarely eat any kind of processed foods. And you know, and I will have a little bit of chocolate once in a while, but I also do a lot of bicycling. And when I've been out for a 20 or 30 mile ride, I don't feel so bad about eating a little bit of something special, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Now I don't go overboard with it. But I think that's the nice thing about learning to listen to our bodies is is understanding what fuels us, what it does, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that. our fruits and vegetables are going to help make us feel full. They'll help pull out that estrogen that we can eat things that are fatty and filling like avocados and, and feel very rich and nourished. This isn't about deprivation of any kind. And that goes right along with understanding what the things that are treats for us and that are, you know, emotional attachments or, or just make that day a little extra special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's a difference between having that for your main course and having that in the way that is special. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there are plenty of things that you can do with whole food to make it more rich. You know, um, I, I will on occasion make like a cream sauce with cashews. You know, mm-hmm. you you put the cashews in some in some warm water and you let them sit for a bit and then you grind them all up and it, you know, you can make a very nice cream sauce with that. And so I'll do stuff like that on occasion, but it's not something that I do that I do a lot because it is something that's very calorie rich and very fat rich. And knowing what that yeah. best fit is for you yeah. as far as what you need. Yeah. 
Well, that's wonderful. So, so having all of these options for diet and knowing that there is no, you know, true perfection and a must do, but taking, you know, honest stock of where you're at. And I think some of that comes into, um, additionally with the severity of your symptoms as well, and how many changes you really need to make in order exactly. to move the needle. So if you're, exactly. uh-huh. you know, if you're having the menopause that every woman dreams of and, and, you know, you it's braggable, then smaller changes will have a bigger impact than mm-hmm. night sweats and insomnia and mood change and dryness. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. going to require a larger mm-hmm. overhaul. Mm-hmm. So meeting where we're at. So you mentioned biking, which brings me to um, kind of the final topic of self-care that I want us to chat on a little bit today. And that is where does movement and exercise fit into this whole equation? Oh, it is so important. (laughs) 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 Yeah. You know, um, first of all, on a more of a scientific basis, we know that movement actually fuels keeping our moods even keeled Mm -hmm. and you know, and, and now that we're understanding even more about it, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but just like your body makes endorphins, your body also makes endocannabinoids Mm -hmm. and your body makes endocannabinoids basically in response to moderate movement. It's phenomenal. Moderate is like what's moderate for you. What's moderate for you may not be what's moderate for me. But and and that's that's why if you've ever noticed that if you're somebody that kind of like huddles huddles in inside when it rains for six days straight, or if you're someplace where you have seasons and it's snowing and you don't get out that much, your body starts aching from lack of movement Mm -hmm. because it's not making those endocannabinoids that it needs to be making to keep it functioning properly. And that's also going to affect your moods. I mean, and if anybody wants to do a deep dive into endocannabinoids, we actually had a conversation about two years ago um, with Jen from Charlotte's Web. Um, You can take a look back at healinggroundmovement.com and there is a whole episode on how fascinating the endocannabinoid system is for us. Mm -hmm. And now to learn what it has in the impact of of perimenopause um this is this is actually new to me and i am i am riveted to know how that movement piece in the endocannabinoid system all comes together here well you know i i can't put something real succinct on it like this causes this kind of thing <clears throat> yeah. but it's just <clears throat> it's that overall you know the more you're moving the the more of that you're going to be making and the more imbalance you're going to feel and that's just going to translate into better moods Mm-hmm. Also, the more you're moving, the more blood circulation you're getting. So you're getting more blood circulation into your brain. So you're going to be able to think more clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have, you have a circulation use of all of these hormones as well. Mm-hmm. That by exercising and stressing our system, we are using those hormone precursors to work in other things like cortisol and testosterone mm-hmm. that we are going to be using and replenishing rather than using or making, neglecting and suffering for lack of yeah. movement. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so moderate movement. So we're not talking, you got to be an ultra marathon, try it, you know, triathlete kind of thing, unless that is, you know, where, where your energy and drive wants to take you. Right. We're talking about getting out and going for a nice brisk walk, bike ride, um, mm-hmm. a yoga class, just mm-hmm. move your body. Right. And we are talking that in my opinion, it needs to be more than that minimum 30 minutes that, you know, that all the <laughs> medical experts tell us, you know, I, I, it really needs to be, if, if you're, if you're wanting to drop, maybe you've gained some weight during the perimenopause years and you're wanting to drop that, that's going to require more movement as well as, as well as the diet changes. Mm-hmm. And so I really think that that 30 minutes thing is really not, mm-hmm. I think, I think we really need more like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour at least yeah. every day. Well, and if we can start thinking about the conveniences that we take in our life, places that we outsource our movement, mm-hmm. you know, this doesn't have to be a strenuous <clears throat> thing. It, it can be creatively bringing more movement back into our day, right. even walking where um, we might've taken a short drive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if someone else walks your pets, do that yourself. Um, thing, things that we have outsourced, we can bring, bring movement back into our lives and that counts, even if it's, you know, yep. chores, it's still moving. Yep. <laughs> it's still moving. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's just more act, more active life, lifestyle. Yeah. And, and that's what I really try to encourage both my patients and my listeners to start taking into account is, you know, of course we love our exercise programs. We, we love hitting the gym. We love doing these sport-like activities and, and we shouldn't give those up for sure. But if we think that having one or two of those sessions a week is going to make up for a sedentary lifestyle, the math just doesn't work out. And the best thing that we can do for our bodies when it comes to this category of movement is look for ways to move a little bit more, a little bit more every day throughout the day. And it all counts. And it's, it's a dirty lie that it doesn't count. (laughs) Yeah. It it all counts. And, you know, one of the things that I tell people and they're, they're, they're floored when I, when I tell them this, because Mm -hmm. you and I know this, but the body has over 600 muscles in it. Mm -hmm. To me, that says that the body was designed to move. And there are theories that our hunter-gatherer ancestors used as much as 5,000 calories a day in their, just in their daily activity, hunting and gathering. So you think about that. Yeah, that they, yeah. they didn't have the convenience of um, Instacart and online shopping. <laughs> they didn't have the, the convenience of a car or a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have the convenience of prepared flour <laughs> or, or any of these yeah. things. Yeah. So life took a lot more movement and a lot more energy. Now, there's a lot of time and space and, and gifts that we have gotten for our conveniences, but you know, the, the trade-off certainly shows up in our body and, mm-hmm. and how we move. And, and then as it turns out, you know, how our hormones interact with the, with our whole being, you know, right. when it comes down to it, movement is, is one of the most beautiful things we can give ourselves. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. 
Well, Dr. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today and, and really peeling back the veil on a lot of assumptions and misinformation um, about perimenopause. Uh, for any of our listeners who are really taken by uh, your protocol and your program, where can they learn more about it and find you? Okay, well, probably the easiest place is I have a public Facebook group that's called Vitality. Um, I'm sorry, Vibrant Health Over 40. Wonderful. So if they, if they just go, go on Facebook and they put in Vibrant Health Over 40, they'll find my group. So that's one way. And then my, um, my website is drlesliek.com. And I'll give you all that to put in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, all of that will be referenced down in the show notes below. If you have any questions um, for Dr. Leslie or want to learn more about living vibrantly after 40, please do go check her out. Um, she has an amazing protocol and an in-depth personal, professional, and clinical knowledge about um, the, the great change and transition awaiting all of us in female <laughs> bodies. <laughs> so Dr. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in today. Um, thank you for joining us in the Healing Ground movement. We will see you next time. Be well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it. Now remember, the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional help.